Chapter Five of the Red Dust by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. Out of Bondage. The mist was heavy and thick, and through it the flying creatures darted upon their innumerable businesses, visible for an instant in all their colorful beauty, then melting slowly into indefiniteness as they sped away. The tribe-folk on the clustered rafts watched them as they darted overhead, and for hours the little squadron of fungoid vessels floated slowly through the central channel of the marsh. The river had split into innumerable currents, which meandered purposelessly through the glistening black mud of the swamp, but after a long time they seemed to reassemble, and Burl could see what had caused the vast morass. Hills appeared on either side of the stream, which grew higher and steeper, as if the foothills of a mountain chain. Then Burl turned and peered before him. Rising straight from the low hills, a wall of high mountains rose toward the sky, and the low-hanging clouds met their rugged flanks but halfway toward the peaks. To right and left the mountains melted into the tenuous haze, but ahead they were firm and stalwart rising and losing their heights in the cloud-banks. They formed a rampart which might have guarded the edge of the world, and the river flowed more and more rapidly, in a deeper and narrower current, toward a cleft between two rugged giants that promised to swallow the water and all that might swim in its depths or float upon its surface. Tall, steep hills rose from either side of the swift current, their sides covered with flaking moles of an exotic shade of rose-pink, mingled here and there with lavender and purple. Rocks, not hidden beneath a coating of fungus, protruded their angular heads from the hillsides. The river valley became a gorge, and then little more than a canyon, with beetling sides that frowned down upon the swift current running beneath them. The small flotilla passed beneath an overhanging cliff, and then shot out to where the cliff sides drew apart and formed a deep amphitheater whose top was hidden in the clouds. And across this open space, on cables all of five hundred feet long, a banded spider had flung its web. It was a monster of its tribe. Its belly was swollen to a diameter of no less than two yards and its outstretched legs would have touched eight points of a ten-yard circle. It was hanging motionless in the center of the colossal snare as the little group of tribe-folk passed underneath, and they saw the broad bands of yellow and black and silver upon its abdomen. They shivered as their little crafts were swept below. Then they came to a little valley, where yellow sand bordered the river, and there was a level space of a hundred yards on either side, before the steep sides of the mountains began their rise. Here the cluster of mushroom rafts were caught in a little eddy and drawn out of the swiftly flowing current. Soon there was a soft and yielding jar. The rafts had grounded. Led by Burl, the tribesmen waded ashore wonderment and excitement in their hearts. Burl searched all about with his eyes. Toadstools and mushrooms, rusts and moles, even giant puffballs grew in the little valley, but 
of the deadly red mushrooms he saw none. A single bee was buzzing slowly over the tangled thickets of fungoids, and the loud voice of a cricket came in a deafening burst of sound, re-echoed from the hillsides, but, save for the far-flung web of the banded spider a mile or more away, there was no sign of the deadly creatures that preyed upon men. Burl began to climb the hillside with his tribe-folk after him. For an hour they toiled upward through confused masses of fungus of almost every species. Twice they stopped to seize upon edible fungi and break them into masses they could carry, and once they paused and made a wide detour around a thicket from which there came a stealthy rustling. Burl believed that the rustling was merely the sound of a moth or butterfly emerging from its chrysalis, but was unwilling to take any chances. He and his people circled the mushroom thicket and mounted higher. And at last, perhaps six or seven hundred feet above the level of the river, they came upon a little plateau, going back into a small pocket in the mountainside. Here they found many of the edible fungoids, and no less than a dozen of the giant cabbages, on whose broad leaves many furry grubs were feeding steadily in placid contentment with themselves and all the world. A small stream bubbled up from a tiny basin, and ran swiftly across the plateau, and there were dense thickets of toadstools in which the tribesmen might find secure hiding-places. The tribe would make itself a new home here. That night they hid among inextricably tangled masses of mushrooms, and saw with amazement the multitude of creatures that ventured forth in the darkness. All the valley and the plateau were illuminated by the shining beacons of huge but graceful fireflies, who darted here and there in delight and, apparently, in security. Upon the earth below, also, many tiny lights glowed. The larvae of the fireflies crawled slowly but happily over the fungus-covered mountainside, and great glow-worms clambered upon the shining tops of the toadstools and rested there, twin broad bands of bluish fire burning brightly within their translucent bodies. They were the females of the firefly race, which never attained to legs and wings but crawl always upon the earth, merely enlarged creatures in the forms of their own larvae. Moths soared overhead with mighty throbbing wing-beats, and all the world seemed a paradise through which no evil creatures roamed in search of prey. And a strange thing came to pass. Soon after darkness fell upon the earth, and the steady drip-drop of the rain began, a musical tinkling sound was heard which grew in volume, and became a deep-toned roar which re-echoed and reverberated from the opposite hillsides, until it was like melodious and long-continued thunder. For a long time the people were puzzled and a little afraid, but Burl took courage and investigated. He emerged from the concealing thicket and peered cautiously about, seeing nothing. Then he dared move in the direction of the sound, and the gleam from a dozen fireflies showed him a sheet of water pouring over a vertical cliff to the river far below. 
The rainfall, gentle as it was, when gathered from all the broad expanse of the mountainside, made a river of its own, which had scoured out a bed, and poured down each night to plunge in a smother of spray and foam through six hundred feet of empty space to the swiftly flowing river in the center of the valley. It was this sound that had puzzled the tribefolk, and this sound that lulled them to sleep when Burl at last came back to allay their fears. The next day they explored their new territory with a boldness of which they would not have been capable a month before. They found a single great trap-door in the earth, sure sign of the burrow of a monster spider, and Burl resolved that before many days the spider would be dealt with. He told his tribesmen so, and they nodded their heads solemnly instead of shrinking back in terror, as they would have done not long since. The tribe was rapidly becoming a group of men capable of taking the aggressive. They needed Burl's rash leadership, and for many generations they would need bold leaders. But they were infinitely superior to the timid, rabbit-like creatures they had been. They bore spears, and they had used them. They had seen danger, and had blindly followed Burl through the forest of strangled things instead of fleeing weakly from the peril. They wore soft yellow fur about their middles, taken from the bodies of giant slugs they had slain. They had eaten much meat, and preferred its succulent taste to the insipid savor of the mushrooms that had once been their steady diet. They knew the exhilaration of brave adventure, though they had been forced into adventure by Burl, and they were far more worthy descendants of their ancestors than those ancestors had known for many thousand years. The exploration of their new domain yielded many wonders and a few advantages. The tribe-folk found that the nearest ant-city was miles away and that the small insects would trouble them but rarely. The nightly rush of water down the sloping sides of the mountain made it undesirable for the sight of an ant colony. And, best of all, back in the little pocket in the mountainside, they found old and disused cells of hunting wasps. The walls of the pocket were made of soft sandstone with alternate layers of clay and the wasps had found digging easy. There were a dozen or more burrows, the shaft of each some four feet in diameter and going back into the cliff for nearly thirty feet, where they branched out into a number of cells. Each of the cells had once held a grub which had grown fat and large upon its hoard of paralyzed crickets, and then had broken away to the outer world to emerge as a full-grown wasp. Now, however, the laboriously tunneled caverns would furnish a hiding-place for the tribe of men, a far more secure hiding-place than the center of the mushroom thickets, and furthermore, a hiding-place which, because more permanent, would gradually become a possession for which the men would fight. It is a curious thing that the advancement of a people from a state of savagery and continual warfare to civilization and continual peace 
is not made by the elimination of the causes of strife, but by the addition of new objects and ideals, in defense of which that same people will offer battle. A single chrysalis was found securely anchored to the underside of a rock-shelf, and Burl detached it with great labor and carried it into one of the burrows, though the task was one that was almost beyond his strength. He desired the butterfly that would emerge for his own use. He preempted too a solitary burrow a little distant from the others, and made preparations for an event that was destined to make his plans wiser and more far-reaching than before. His followers were equally busy with their various burrows, gathering stores of soft growth for their couches, and later, at Burl's suggestion, even carrying within the dark caverns the radiant heads of the luminous mushrooms to furnish illumination. The light would be dim, and after the mushroom had partly dried it would cease, but for a people utterly ignorant of fire it was far from a bad plan. Burl was very happy for that time. His people looked upon him as a savior, and obeyed his least order without question. He was growing to repose some measure of trust in them, too, as men who began to have some glimmerings of the new-found courage that had come to him, and which he had striven hard to implant in their breasts. The tribe had been a formless gathering of people. There were six or seven men and as many women, and naturally families had come into being, sometimes after fierce and absurd fights among the men but the families were not the sharply distinct agreements that would have been in a tribe of higher development. The marriage was but an agreement, terminable at any time, and the men had but little of the feeling of parenthood, though the women had all the fierce maternal instinct of the insects about them. These burrows in which the tribe-folk were making their homes would put an end to the casual nature of the marriage bonds. They were homes in the making, damp and humid burrows without fire or heat, but homes nevertheless. The family may come before the home in the development of mankind, but it invariably exists when the home has been made. The tribe had been upon the plateau for nearly a week, when Burl found that stirrings and strugglings were going on within the huge cocoon he had laid close beside the burrow he had chosen for his own. He cast aside all other work, and waited patiently for the thing he knew was about to happen. He squatted on his haunches beside the huge oblong cylinder, his spear in his hand, waiting patiently. From time to time he nibbled at a bit of edible mushroom. Burl had acquired many new traits, among which a little foresight was most prominent, but he had never conquered the habit of feeling hungry at any and every time that food was near at hand. He had to wait. He had food, therefore he ate. The sound of scrapings came from the closed cocoon, caked upon its outer side with dirt and mold. The scrapings and scratchings continued, and presently a tiny hole showed, which rapidly enlarged. Tiny jaws and a dry glazed skin became visible. 
the skin looking as if it had been varnished with many coats of brown shellac. Then a malformed head forced its way through and stopped. All motion ceased for a matter of half an hour. Then the strange blind head seemed to become distended, to be swelling. A crack appeared along its upper part, which lengthened and grew wide, and then a second head appeared from within the first. This head was soft and downy, and a slender proboscis was coiled beneath its lower edge, like the trunk of one of the elephants that had been extinct for many thousand years. Soft scales and fine hairs alternated to cover it, and two immense many-faceted eyes gazed mildly at the world on which it was looking for the first time. The color of the whole was purest milky white. Slowly and painfully, assisting itself by slender, colorless legs that seemed strangely feeble and trembling, a butterfly crawled from the cocoon. Its wings were folded and lifeless, without substance or color, but the body was a perfect white. The butterfly moved a little distance from its cocoon and slowly unfurled its wings. With the action, life seemed to be pumped into them from some hidden spring in the insect's body. The slender antenna spread out and wavered gently in the warm air. The wings were becoming broad expanses of snowy velvet. A trace of eagerness seemed to come into the butterfly's actions. Somewhere there in the valley sweet food and joyous companions awaited it. Fluttering above the fungoids of the hillsides, surely, there was a mate with whom the joys of love were to be shared. Surely upon those gigantic patches of green, half hidden in the haze, there would be laid tiny golden eggs that in time would hatch into small, fat grubs. Strength came to the butterfly's limbs. Its wings were spread and closed with a new assurance. It spread them once more, and raised them to make the first flight of this new existence in a marvelous world full of delights and adventures. Burl struck home with his spear. The delicate limbs struggled in agony, the wings fluttered helplessly, and in a little while the butterfly lay still upon the fungus-carpeted earth and Burl leaned over to strip away the great wings of snow-white velvet, to sever the long and slender antenna, and then to call his tribesmen and bid them share in the food he had for them. And there was a feast that afternoon. The tribesmen sat about the white carcass, cracking open the delicate limbs for the meat within them, and Burl made sure that Saya secured the choicest bits. The tribesmen were happy. Then one of the children of the tribe stretched a hand aloft and pointed up the mountainside. Coming slowly down the slanting earth was a long, narrow file of living animals. For a time the file seemed to be but one creature, but Burl's keen eyes soon saw that there were many. They were caterpillars, each one perhaps ten feet long each with a tiny black head armed with sharp jaws and with dull red fur upon their backs. The rear of the procession 
was lost in the mist of the low-hanging cloud-banks that covered the mountainside some two thousand feet above the plateau, but the foremost was no more than three hundred yards away. Slowly and solemnly the procession came on, the black head of the second touching the rear of the first, and the head of the third touching the rear of the second. In faultless alignment, without intervals, they moved steadily down the slanting side of the mountain. Save the first, they seemed absorbed in maintaining their perfect formation, but the leader constantly rose upon his hinder half and waved the forepart of his body in the air, first to the right and then to the left, as if searching out the path he would follow. The tribesfolk watched in amazement, mingled with terror. Only Burl was calm. He had never seen a slug that meant danger to man, and he reasoned that these were at any rate moving slowly so that they could be distanced by the fleeter-footed human beings, but he also meant to be cautious. The slow march kept on. The rear of the procession of caterpillars emerged from the cloud-bank, and Burl saw that a shining white line was left behind them. No less than eighty great caterpillars, clad in white and dingy red, were solemnly moving down the mountainside, leaving a path of shining silk behind them. Head to tail, in single file, they had no eyes or ears for anything but their procession. The leader reached the plateau and turned. He came to the cluster of giant cabbages and ignored them. He came to a thicket of mushrooms and passed through it, followed by his devoted band. Then he came to an open space where the earth was soft and sandy, where sandstone had weathered and made a great heap of easily moved earth. The leading caterpillar halted and began to burrow experimentally in the ground. The result pleased him, and some signal seemed to pass along the eight-hundred-foot line of creatures. The leader began to dig with feet and jaws, working furiously to cover himself completely with the soft earth. Those immediately behind him abandoned their formation and pressed forward in haste. Those still farther back moved more hurriedly. All, when they reached the spot selected by the leader, abandoned any attempt to keep in line, and hastened to find an unoccupied spot in the open space in which to bury themselves. For perhaps half an hour the clearing was the scene of intense activity, incredible activity. Huge, ten-foot bodies burrowed desperately in the whitish earth, digging frantically to cover themselves. After the half-hour, however, the last of the caterpillars had vanished. Only an occasional movement of the earth, from the struggle of a buried creature, to bury itself still deeper, and the freshly turned surface, showed that beneath the clearing on the plateau eighty great slugs were preparing themselves for the sleep of metamorphosis. The piled-up earth and the broad white band of silk, leading back up the hillside until it became lost in the clouds, alone remained to tell of the visitation. The tribesmen had watched in amazement. They had never seen these creatures before. But they knew, of course, why they had entombed themselves. Had they known what the scientists of thirty thousand years before had written in weighty and dull books, 
they would have deduced from the appearance of the processionary caterpillars, or pine caterpillars, that somewhere above the bank of clouds there were growing trees and sunlight, that a moon shone down, and stars twinkled from the blue vault of a cloudless sky. But the tribesmen did not know. They only knew that there, beneath the soft earth, was a mighty store of food for them when they cared to dig for it, that their provisions for many months were secure, and that Burl their leader was a great and mighty man for having led them to this land of safety and plenty. Burl read their emotions in their eyes, but better than their amazement and wonderment was a glance that had nothing whatever to do with his leadership of the tribe. And then Burl rose and took the two snowy white velvet cloaks from the wings of the white butterfly. One of them he flung about his own shoulders, and the other he flung about Saya. And then those two stood up before the wide-eyed tribesmen, and Burl spoke. This is my mate, and my food is her food, and her wrath is my wrath. My burrow is her burrow, and her sorrow is my sorrow. Men whom I have led to this land of plenty, hear me. As ye obey my words, see to it that the words of Saya are obeyed likewise, for my spear will loose the life of any man who angers her. Know that as I am great beyond all other men, so Saya is great beyond all other women, for I say it and it is so. And he drew Saya toward him, trembling slightly, and put his arm about her waist before all the tribe, and the tribesmen muttered in acquiescent whispers that what Burl said was true, as they had already known. Then, while the pink-skinned men feasted on the meat Burl had provided for them, he and Saya went toward the burrow he had made ready. It was not like the other burrows being set apart from them, and its entrance was bordered on either side by mushrooms as black as night. All about the entrance the black mushrooms clustered, a strange species that grew large and scattered its spores abroad, and then of its own accord melted into an inky liquid that flowed away, sinking slowly into the ground. In a little hollow below the opening of the burrow, an inky pool had gathered, which reflected the gray clouds above and the shapes of the mushrooms that overhung its edges. Burl and Saya made their way toward the burrow in silence. A picturesque couple against the black background of the sable mushrooms and the earth made dark by the inky liquid. Both of their figures were swathed in cloaks of unsmirched whiteness and wondrous softness, and bound to Burl's forehead were the feathery, lace-like antennae of a great moth, making flowing plumes of purest gold. His spear seemed cast from bronze, and he was a proud figure as he led Saya past the black pool and to the doorway of their home. They sat there, watching, while the darkness came on and the moths and fireflies emerged to dance in the night and listened when the rain began its slow, deliberate dripping from the heavy clouds above. Presently a gentle rumbling began, the accumulation of the rain from all the mountainside, forming a torrent that would pour in a six-hundred-foot drop to the river far below. 
The sound of the rushing water grew louder, and was echoed back from the cliffs on the other side of the valley. The fireflies danced like fairy lights in the chasm, and all the creatures of the night winged their way aloft to join in the ecstasy of life and love. And then, when darkness was complete, and only the fitful gleams of the huge fireflies were reflected from the still surface of the black pool beneath their feet, Burl reached out his hand to Saya, sitting beside him in the darkness. She yielded shyly, and her soft, warm hand found his in the obscurity, and Burl bent over and kissed her on the lips. End of Chapter 5 End of The Red Dust by Murray Leinster This book read by Phil Chenevere in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in December 2012